Sorry about the delay. I was actually getting something cut off my face. So, um... Wear sunscreen. If I could offer you only one tip for the future, sunscreen would be it. Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 429, Power Brokers and Power Breakers. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts, and you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a tube of sunscreen per month. And thank you very much to Irene, Lewis, and Riley for signing up already. Okay, elephant in the room. I accidentally misspoke last episode. I had said that Earl Waltheof was the only English Earl in England. However, the episode was set at the end of 1071, so he actually wasn't. Earl Gospatrick of Northumbria was actually still around, which is surprising since he was a potential claimant to the throne and a former rebel, and William didn't tend to like those. However, following the collapse of the Northumbrian Rebellion, Gospatrick had sworn fealty to William, and he immediately used his influence in Northumbria to support his new Norman king. So, he was still serving as the Earl of Northumbria. So I'm sorry about that. There were actually two English earls remaining in England, or at least there were, at the end of 1071. Which brings us to 1072. To the north, in Scotland, reigned King Malcolm Canmore. And we've been following his story for a long time now, and for good reason. I mean, his story literally intersects with the infamous Macbeth. But also, King Malcolm Canmore was, and remains, one of the most powerful and longest reigning Scottish kings to date. And it was this guy who was now married to Margaret, the sister of Edgar the Atheling. And that made Malcolm the brother-in-law to the man who, by right of succession, was the actual rightful king of England. And just in case you thought that fact had slipped Malcolm's attention, or that a proud Scottish king wouldn't be all that concerned with the state of affairs of the English throne, consider this. During this period, it was typical for Scottish kings to name their sons with Scottish names. That's why we see kings with names like Malcolm, Donald, and Kenneth. And sure enough, Malcolm had named his sons that he had with his previous wife, Ingebjorg, with traditional stoutly Scottish names. Duncan, Donald, and Malcolm. But when King Malcolm married Margaret and began having children with her, they named their children very differently. There was little Edward who was almost certainly named after Margaret's dad, Edward the Exile. After him came little Edmund, probably named after her grandfather, King Edmund Ironside. Then came little Athelred, likely named after her great-grandfather, King Athelred Unred. And it wouldn't be long before they'd welcome another little boy into their family, who they would name Edgar. You know, just like Margaret's deposed brother, Edgar the Atheling. Are you sensing a theme here? Yeah, William noticed that theme too. He also noticed that Scotland, much like Flanders, had become sort of a wildlife preserve for exiled English nobles. 
And while Scotland is lovely, it's a fair bet that those nobles wanted their lands and titles back. So Scotland was making William a little nervous. And in early 1072, with the fiercest English rebellions behind him, William decided that he needed to address his anxiety. Now, a typical way for handling this sort of thing would be to send a messenger to Malcolm and open a diplomatic dialogue to address these concerns. Ideally, you would want to try to avoid unnecessary bloodshed and reach a functional understanding with your potential rival. Now, if things were especially delicate, you could enlist a more neutral third party who would intercede on your behalf and find out exactly what your rival had in mind. But diplomacy wasn't really William's style. He just wasn't that much of a people person. And honestly, he had a hard enough time getting his own people to do what he wanted. But while he did have those drawbacks, he was quite good at one thing in particular. Violence. So William assembled a huge army from across the smoking husk of his new kingdom of England. And this thing was so big that even Edric the Wild had been conscripted into it. It was enormous. And then William iced this terror cake with a large naval force. William was looking to one-shot his Scotland issue. Which honestly makes a lot of sense. He had been fighting in England for five years. And while he was on top right now, that didn't mean he'd be on top tomorrow. And all those rebellions in England had weakened his position in the place that he really cared about. Normandy. So you can imagine that he'd want to nip this thing in the bud as quickly as possible, rather than facing another long, drawn-out war like the ones he had in Northumbria and East Anglia. He was just too busy for that, and honestly, I suspect he wanted to get back to what he really wanted to do here, which was build an empire. But William wasn't the only person dealing with a full schedule here. The Normans back home in Normandy were also quite active in late 1071 and early 1072, and they were doing things that had quite an impact on the lives of the English. And so while William was building up an army, we're going to take a second and focus on the cultural things that were happening across the channel, because there were a lot of cultural things that were happening during this period, largely because everything of this period was politically and socially messy. The people were living through a time of intense social breach. I mean, norms were being violated all over the place. Grift was commonplace. Those in power were breaking the rules at a furious pace, and political expediency and personal power grabs were guiding decisions far more than any set of values or a sort of ethos. And I know, it's super hard to imagine living through a time like that, but do your best and try. Now, as is always the case in times like these, as those norms were being violated and thrown into the trash can, new norms were also being created, and new power structures were being formed. Though it probably wouldn't have felt like that at the time. But what the people living in 1072 couldn't have known was that they were on the first steps of a 200-year journey where France becomes the cultural hegemon of medieval Europe. Now, this is a big topic, and it's one that we will be thoroughly covering, both here and also with Z on the members feed. 
But for now, know that this time in history is where many cultural norms that you take for granted today were being first introduced to Europe. And a lot of it was being propelled through the intense expansion of French aristocratic culture. Many of these ideas that you likely assumed were eternal and that you definitely associate with tradition were actually radical views of their time and were introduced and enforced deliberately. And so let's take an example of one of these new norms that was being founded at this moment in history across the channel in Normandy. You see, while William was gathering his army, back home in Rouen, Archbishop John was holding a synod to handle some affairs within the Norman church. And this was actually quite the event. William's half-brother, Bishop Odo, was there. So was Geoffrey of Coutance, the bishop who had defeated the rebellion in Dorset. All the big movers and shakers within the Norman church were there. All of them, except William. Probably because he was mustering that army. Now, in many ways, this was just like any old synod. It was a chance to hash out a lot of issues, settle disputes, and set church policy. But what made this one special was that it was also focused on a particularly hot-button issue. They were going to settle the matter of wives, particularly the clergy's wives. Now, some of you might be wondering if you just misheard me. But the issue of the clergy and whether or not they were allowed as men of the cloth to have things like wives and to make little clergy babies with those wives was far more than settled religious law at this point in history. We take it for granted that the Catholic Church demands celibacy now. But back when the concept was introduced, it was in fact a highly controversial idea. And that's because there's actually no point in the Bible where Jesus says something like, the meek shall inherit the earth, and also priests shouldn't get married. Instead, this idea relies on the interpretation of a handful of passages. And making matters worse, they're passages that are mostly describing how the apostles left their families behind to follow Jesus. And biblically, this is made even more complicated because Paul, in 1 Corinthians, actually says that there's no divine command for celibacy. But at the same time, he also helpfully adds that it's probably a good idea to be single because, quote, those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this, end quote. Now, setting aside Paul's recently divorced energy, you can see how that could be reasonably interpreted one way or the other, right? But wait, there's more. They weren't just trying to work out the religious implications of marriage. This synod also was hard at work on the issue of the clergy keeping concubines. Because yeah, sometimes the clergy kept concubines. And I'm no theologian here, but I could imagine that the priests who had concubines were busy arguing that they were actually following Paul's command that, quote, those who have wives should live as if they do not, end quote. You know, at least for the occasional evening. As I said earlier, this was a messy time. And in this case, the question at hand involved things that were incredibly personal. And while Archbishops Lanfranc of Canterbury and John of Rouen were firmly on the side of I got 99 problems, 
Their intent was to reform the institution as a whole and insist on celibacy for men of the church. And not everyone thought that this qualified as a reformation. For many of them, it seemed more like an imposition. But since Archbishop John sat at the head of the Synod of Rouen, well, he decided that this discussion had gone on long enough and the priests were hereby barred from cohabitating, and absolute chastity was now mandatory for anyone serving at the level of archdeacon or dean or higher. You're welcome. There was a little problem, though, and that was that a lot of the clergy rather liked being married and also liked having concubines. Thank you very much. And so at the synod, the Norman church was basically in civil war over this issue. And the resistance to these new requirements wasn't just coming from the local youth pastors. We're talking about high-ranking officials, including bishops. Big bishops. I mean, I don't know what Bishop Joffrey of Coutance was doing behind closed doors, but considering that he had a reputation of being much more of a knight than a priest, I can make a few guesses. And as for William's half-brother, Bishop Odo, well, he had a son who would go on to serve in a prominent role in King Henry I's court as late as 1131. So whatever he was up to, I know it wasn't celibacy. So Archbishop John wasn't just telling a bunch of sleepy old scholars to keep to their books. He was demanding a full lifestyle change to a bunch of battle-hardened, violent, and politically powerful men. It was a bold move. And once the new rule was announced, the assembled clergy responded in a traditional Norman fashion. They rioted. And we're not talking about a couple windows being smashed at Starbucks. No, they proceeded to stone Archbishop John, and he was forced to flee the synod for his life. And as the Archbishop hiked up his robes and legged it, even he would have had to admit that he had no one to blame but himself for this. All across Europe, this same scene was playing out any time anyone tried to institute ecclesiastical celibacy. And it would play out again and again for quite a while. Because it turns out that people really don't like it when their boss tells them to get a divorce. And that's only one big change being thrown around at this point. The church of the 11th century was roiling with radical change. And a lot of the stuff that we consider written in stone now was only just being instituted. And the transition was anything but peaceful. And we have spoken about this before, but it's a good time to repeat it. The focus of this podcast isn't theological. The religious arguments behind these moves are still really important to those who are men of the cloth today. But they're also as deep and complicated as the political and social history that we've been talking about. So we simply don't have the time to go over them all in their own right. However, the church is a fundamental social and political institution right up into the modern era. And so we will be continuing to follow its trajectory from those vantage points. And the late 11th century really is a period of radical change for this key institution. And those changes, both in how the church handled its own matters and also how it dealt with the world outside its walls, were incredibly consequential for people all throughout Europe and beyond. Now, the biggest consequence of all, of course, was the Crusades. 
and what would become crusader culture was starting to incubate in Rome and Normandy. Speaking of which, while Archbishop John was doing the difficult work of breaking up married couples, happy or not, a delegation of Norman churchmen had traveled to Rome. And this is actually an excellent illustration of how continental power, and in particular, papal and Norman power, were working hand in glove during this critical period of history. And both were working overtime to advance their authority and influence. And while they generally worked rather well together, that balance of power was a delicate dance. And this delegation was a perfect example of all of the above. It was led by the newly appointed Archbishop Lanfranc of Canterbury. Now, as you know, Lanfranc was a Norman churchman who had been involved in the conquest right from the start. He was up to his neck in this thing, and he had been instrumental in gaining papal support. As a result, when the papal legate came over in 1070 and turfed Archbishop Stigand out of power, it was Lanfranc who was slotted right in. Joining him was the newly appointed Archbishop of York, Thomas. Now, Thomas had been William's chaplain, but when William's army desecrated the Church of York and harried the North, well, old Archbishop Eldred of York's heart couldn't take it, and he died. And so William appointed his buddy, Thomas, to the position. Accompanying the two archbishops was Bishop Remigius of Fecamp, and he also had supported the conquest from the start. And there's even some suggestion that he fought at Hastings, in addition to providing knights and even a ship for the invasion. So, like his compatriots, Remigius was all in on this thing. And soon after Hastings, he had been appointed as the Bishop of Dorchester, and he had been consecrated by Archbishop Stigand of Canterbury, which actually was a bit of a problem, and we're going to return to that in a minute. And completing the Holy Company was Abbot Baldwin of Bury St. Edmunds. Now, Baldwin held the distinction of being the only French abbot ever installed by King Edward the Confessor. And he had come to power at the same time that the Godwinsons had been consolidating their own power in England. Now, Baldwin was a bit of an odd man out here. And bringing an abbot along was a bit strange when you consider how powerful the other three members of this delegation were. I mean, two archbishops and a bishop. But... Consider the fact that Thomas had been appointed to the rebellious north, and Lanfranc was overseeing the rebellious south, and Remigius was the bishop who was governing over the diocese that included Ely. And as for Baldwin? Well, Baldwin just happened to be governing one of Ely's neighbors. And this whole group had set off for Rome shortly after that rebellion at Ely. So, while the purpose of this trip was ostensibly to acquire palliums for Thomas and Lanfranc, as their recent promotions wouldn't be official until they got their fancy scarves, there was another purpose for this trip. The Norman occupation wanted church support, and the colonization of England had been hitting some snags recently. As such, it probably made a lot of sense for the Normans to send a bunch of churchmen who could complain bitterly to the Pope about these English and the rebellions. But at the same time, the churchmen were still, you know, 11th century Normans. And as such, they came with their own baggage. 
These guys were not known for working well together, especially when lands and titles were in play, and they all had lands and titles. And sure enough, even though this delegation was few in number, there were power struggles aplenty. For example, Archbishop Thomas and Bishop Remigius were at loggerheads. Over what? Well, what else? Real estate. You see, their dominions butted right up against each other. And while coveting was strictly forbidden in the Ten Commandments, the fact was they were 11th century Norman aristocrats and land was land. So chances are that all the way to Rome, Lanfranc had to listen to these guys complain about each other. Thomas wanted Remigius' land and Remigius wanted Thomas's land. And Lanfranc and Baldwin just wanted them to shut the hell up. And honestly, it was actually a bit cheeky that Remigius was getting into this dispute with Thomas in the first place. Because Remigius, at this point, wasn't even really a bishop. You see, when that papal legate came to England and turfed out Archbishop Stigand, that move had been really useful for Lanfranc and William, as it invalidated a bunch of stuff that got in the way of the Norman grip on power. And it also paved the way for the Normans to clear the English church of those pesky English. See, basically, since many of the English churchmen had been consecrated by Stigand, and Stigand had been declared a fake archbishop, that meant, in turn, those priests were also declared fake all along. And as such, they could be fired and replaced by Lanfranc and his friends. However, this simple life hack also turned out to be a little awkward because any priests consecrated by Stigand were now suspect, including the handful who weren't English, like Remigius. Making matters worse, it had been pointed out to the church that Remigius had personally provided a bunch of knights and a ship for William's invasion. And then after Hastings, William had rewarded Remigius with a bishopric. It was pretty typical stuff for Norman Horseborough culture. But the problem was that Remigius wasn't answering to Norman Horsebros. He was in the church, and so he was technically supposed to answer to the church. And those church nerds didn't like it when people bribed their way into bishoprics. They even had a word for it. Simony. So Remigius was in hot water. And given all that controversy, you might be wondering why Remigius was even part of this delegation. And also, why he felt like he could argue with Archbishop Thomas about boundaries and authority. Well, funny story. Archbishop Thomas had been William's chaplain, and as such, he was quite close in proximity to power. But not as close as Remigius, because Remigius was William's relative. Yeah, his priestly robes were feathered with aristocratic connections which meant that he was able to throw his weight around more than the average priest. And as such, his struggle with Archbishop Thomas was quite a serious thing. And that wasn't Archbishop Thomas's only power struggle. He was also dealing with Archbishop Lanfranc. It's Brittany, bitch. You see, despite Lanfranc claiming that he didn't want to be the Archbishop of Canterbury, because the people were too backwards and he neither knew nor wanted to learn their barbarous language, well, it turns out that now that he had the job, he felt that as the Archbishop of Canterbury, he should be in charge of all of Britain. 
And this feels a little bit like getting asked out on a date, claiming you have no interest in that person, and then insisting that you stop to pick out your wedding dress on the way to coffee. I'm not a mind reader here, but I think that Lan Frank absolutely was interested in this job. So much so that he even wanted to change the rules and force poor Archbishop Thomas to swear obedience to him. And as a fellow Archbishop who was governing the highly influential See of York, you can imagine how Thomas felt about that. Then rounding out the group, we have Abbot Baldwin, who was, of course, embroiled in his own power struggle as well. You see, he didn't want to have to answer to the Bishop of Elmham. And while there was a new bishop in that position, since the previous one had been turfed out of power by that papal legate in 1070, and the new one was, of course, a good, proper, serious Norman, none of that English nonsense, well, that still wasn't good enough for Baldwin. Baldwin wanted his institution to be completely exempt from the bishop's authority. It was a deal that was similar to one that Lanfranc had struck for some of the Norman monasteries across the channel. And so he was traveling to see the Pope in hopes that he would do something like that. And finally, we have a power struggle that involved someone who wasn't even there. You see, at some point, the Pope was made aware that William had deposed and imprisoned Bishop Athelrich of Selsey. And you know, while all that theft and murder committed against everyday people in England was one thing, this thing with Bishop Athelrich was something else entirely. I mean, Unferth was just some guy the Pope had never heard of, while Athelrich was a highly respected bishop and a preeminent English legal scholar. And despite everything that had been going on for the last few years, William wasn't supposed to summarily chuck bishops like Athelrich into prison without cause, and then give that bishopric to one of his buddies. And by the way, it's not even clear why the king singled Athelrich out for this in particular. Our best clue is in the timing. William had thrown Bishop Athelrich into prison at the same time that he was throwing other English figures into prison for failing to be sufficiently appreciative of his Norman ways. So we probably could guess what Athelrich did, but we can't know for sure. All we know is that somehow, the fact that this bishop was wrongfully rotting away in prison had been brought to the Pope's attention. So basically, what we have here is history's lamest D&D party traveling to seek the help of the Supreme Pontiff in their own personal power plays, while also complaining that the English were being ungrateful for all that civilized piety that Normandy was giving them at the end of a sword, and probably also asking him to overlook the fact that King William was wrongfully imprisoning well-respected English bishops. It was a bit of a mess. So how was the Pope going to handle it? Well, very carefully. Because at the end of the day, we're not looking at the Pope holding all the power and issuing proclamations to his subordinates. Sure, these guys technically answered to him, but the political situation of the church was much more complicated, and it was honestly a lot more dicey for the papacy than Alexander II would have preferred. Remember, when Pope Alexander II got involved in the Norman Conquest, it was, in large part, because Hildebrand and others had sold it as a way for the papacy to finally begin having real temporal power in European politics, 
rather than getting pushed around by kings and such. In fact, when this whole scheme was proposed, William had agreed that he would hold his new conquered kingdom under the Pope. But one long look at William's behavior told a very different story. This guy was looting monasteries, imprisoning clergy, desecrating minsters, imprisoning bishops, selling bishops, and acting so badly that his own personal biographer appears to have called it quits. Not exactly the actions of a guy who saw himself as holding authority under the Pope. Rome had made a play for power, but they were coming to realize that they had the tiger by the tail. And that's actually putting it kindly. Looking back, this looks much more like they got drunk and thought it would be cool to own a pet tiger. And now that they've sobered up a bit, they've found themselves locked in a room with a f***ing tiger. Making matters worse for Pope Alexander was that, according to tradition, the Pope had once been a student of Lanfranc's. Malmesbury tells us that it was Alexander himself who suggested that Lanfranc be installed as the Archbishop of Canterbury. And sure enough, when you look at the documents, you can see how much influence Lanfranc held over the Pope. So the Pope had far from a free hand here. And as the Pope listened to the various complaints and requests from the Holy Normandy Company, Alexander probably realized how quickly this was spinning out of control. Specifically, his control. He had to thread this needle very carefully. And I get the sense that the Pope figured his best option was to invest as much power in Lanfranc, his own teacher and friend, as he thought he could get away with while also keeping William happy. So the Pope reinstated William's relative, Bishop Remigius, and let that whole simony thing wash away. And history generally credits Lanfranc's personal influence for that move. And that boundary dispute between Remigius and Thomas? The Pope declared that Lanfranc should have the power to settle it. So all at once, he was punting on the issue, and he was also finding a way to further elevate his friend's authority in England. Abbot Baldwin secured his exemption from the Bishop of Elmham under the same terms that Lanfranc had secured earlier. And as for Lanfranc's request to have Canterbury be the primary see for all of Britain, well, that was a tricky one. Because if the Pope granted that request, he would be, at the same time, effectively demoting Archbishop Thomas. And that was made quite awkward thanks to the fact that Thomas was very close to William. So, Pope Alexander punted again, and he sent the issue back to England. Kind of. You see, the Pope stated that the English church, meaning a bunch of bishops, should be the ones to determine it. And the proceedings would be overseen by the king, the queen, and a papal legate. And this move would give William a lot of influence over the proceedings, which he would obviously love. But the Pope didn't completely abandon his friend on the issue either. In fact, he put his finger pretty heavily on the scales. You see, Pope Alexander wrote a letter to William. And in that letter, he praised William's rule and encouraged him to keep up his righteous style of leadership. He basically exhorted him as being an all-around incredible person, which, having covered his activities in England for this long, I think we can all agree he absolutely was. And then he added, you know, on an unrelated note, that he thought William should keep Lanfranc close 
and follow his advice, as Lanfranc was, quote, one of the leading sons of the Roman church, end quote. Yeah, the Pope was a real subtle person operating in incredibly subtle times. Now, after doing Lanfranc a solid, the Pope then gently asked William to take another look at that situation with Archbishop Athelrich of Selzy. You know, the one who is currently rotting in a Norman prison. Now, notably, the Pope does not directly condemn this. He doesn't even directly ask William to release Athelrich. Instead, he just delicately asks the king to take another look at the situation. The Pope had lent William the power of the church in his quest to take England. And it seems pretty clear to me that William had never given it back. But with all these administrative tasks handled or punted, the delegation headed back to England, finally arriving in the spring roughly around the time when the churchmen were rioting in Rouen and William was preparing for his invasion of Scotland. And they were freshly armed with a papal legate, with orders to make some fairly serious decisions. And so they held a pair of ecclesiastical councils, first a smaller one at Winchester on Easter, and then a really big one at Windsor on Whitsun. And just as the Pope had asked, they worked out whether or not Canterbury should have primacy over York. And these councils were presided over by William and Matilda. In the end, the bishops determined that yes, the Pope's friend should be in charge. Lanfranc and Canterbury were declared primus totius Britanniae, primate of all of Britain. Then they added that Archbishop Thomas would have to swear obedience to Lanfranc. But... William then intervened on his chaplain's behalf and basically said, nah, bro, that's not going to happen. But despite William's intervention, Thomas's wings were still heavily clipped. The council decided that the Archbishop of York would only have command over a single bishopric, the rebellious territory of Durham, which, thanks to William's harrying, was probably a bit empty these days. But at the same time, they seem to have also been a bit nervous about setting this precedent because they added a clause assuring that future archbishops of York would be ordained according to custom. And since this resolution of primacy wasn't custom, that meant this was a one-time thing, at least as far as the council was concerned. This whole thing feels a bit like Bush v. Gore, where the Supreme Court said at the end, oh, and you can't use this case as precedent. It's a bit weird, but there it is. So Lanfranc basically got everything he wanted. He was granted religious power over all of England. Thomas was relegated to governing the burned out Northern Territory. And he even got a letter from the Pope telling the King to follow his advice. This was a big win. So you can imagine how he felt about it. Yeah, he was mad. Archbishop Lanfranc really wanted that oath of obedience from Thomas. He didn't want any questions as to who the top dog in England was. So he got the Pope back on the line. Or at least he tried to. The Pope, however, was letting that call go to voicemail. And probably for good reason. The records suggest that William had had it up to here with Lanfranc's grasping, and he was starting to respond with anger anytime Lanfranc complained that he didn't have all the power. And we're not told specifically why this pissed the king off so much, but I have to imagine 
game recognizes game. And actually, William's frustration with the Archbishop's ambition got intense enough that Lanfranc was forced to back off a bit. And we even have a letter where he says he was dropping the beef entirely, quote, out of love for the king, end quote. Like I keep saying, this was messy. And William wasn't the only one getting annoyed here. Archbishop Thomas was the real target of this scheming, and he seems to have lost himself a bit when everyone was signing the witness list for the council, because he broke with tradition and he wrote a passive-aggressive little postscript in Latin, simply saying, I concede. The whole thing feels a bit like him writing, fine, you win, I hope you're happy. However, Thomas did get a little consolation prize out of all of this. You see, while his authority in England had been restricted to his bishopric and the bishopric of Durham, the council did give him a new bit of territory to play with. A small territory, a little known region called Scotland. And wouldn't you know it, William just happened to be putting together an army to invade Scotland and assert his authority over that kingdom. And thanks to this new appointment of Thomas to oversee all of Scotland, William could argue that he was actually doing this, not for himself, but for Jesus, just like he had done in 1066. Lucky, isn't it? I wonder whose idea it was to give William's chaplain that territory. And John of Worcester tells us that several months later, on August 15th, William's combined invasion force was finally ready to strike Scotland. And this monster of an army William had mustered really was massive. We're talking about a full fleet and full army. And as I said earlier, it even included leaders that were previously opponents, like Edric the Wild. And if you're getting flashbacks to 1066 here, you're not alone. In fact, in writs and diplomas leading up to this invasion, we can see allusions to William's claim of overlordship over Scotland. This whole mess also had the Pope and archbishops involved. You also had the fact that previous English kings had exerted authority over Scotland from time to time. And in documents, William was claiming to be their inheritor, and thus the inheritor of that authority. So we've got religious and inheritance arguments providing cover for his latest land grab. It's familiar, isn't it? And while we don't have an accusation of oath-breaking, we do have the next best thing. Scotland was harboring English rebels. So yeah, this was essentially the same playbook that William had used first on Maine and then on England. And I suspect that King Malcolm III of Scotland, having watched what happened over his southern border, noticed the pattern that was starting to form and he had no interest in making an honorable stand like Harold had done. But at the same time, he would have been all too aware of what William and his boys did when they were left to their own devices. I mean, they were sitting on the doorstep of the Herring of the North just a few years ago. So Malcolm couldn't just ignore this and hope it would go away. Something had to be done. But thankfully, he did have one advantage. An invasion force of this size was slow to gather and slow to move. So he had time. And as the Normans approached, King Malcolm moved. He kept his people out of the range of the Norman forces. And he kept moving. We're told that the Normans crossed the Firth of Forth 
and they, quote, found nothing there that they were any the better for, end quote. Duck and weave, guys. Duck and weave. And after a bit of hide and seek, William realized that he wasn't going to get the battle he was searching for. And instead, this would need to be settled through negotiation. The kings met at Abernathy, and Malcolm agreed to give William homage and also provide him hostages, including his eldest son, Duncan. And that does sound like a serious political hostage for a king to provide. But you might remember that Duncan was from Malcolm's first marriage. So while William was ostensibly getting the heir to the Scottish throne as a hostage, the children with a dynastic claim on England through their mother were staying in Scotland. And I suspect that Malcolm knew exactly what he was doing here. Because while Duncan was the eldest son, Malcolm designated Edward, his eldest son by Margaret, as his heir. You know, due to Duncan's absence. And the cats in the cradle and the silver spoon. Little boy blue and the man of the moon. When you're coming home, son, I don't know when. But we'll get together then. Poor kid. Now, given the history of how Norman guests were treated up until now, you might expect to never hear from Duncan ever again. But this too is a turning point for how France becomes a European superpower and a cultural hegemon. Duncan, who was probably about 10 years old at the time that his father handed him over, would go on to grow up in the Anglo-Norman court, and he would ultimately be raised as a Norman knight. The relationships and allegiances that he builds in this time were strong enough that even after he was released to go home, he chose to stay in service to the House of Normandy. Though, Duncan will be back, and his story is pivotal in the time of the reign of William Rufus. But this foster hostage practice among the medieval nobility was changing the landscape of power in medieval Britain and on the continent. Because local heirs, or at least potential heirs, were developing relationships and habits and identities that aligned with Norman elites, and they would ultimately adopt Norman culture. And this starts playing out very rapidly on both sides of the channel. The foster hostages were turning aristocratic culture and court culture into French aristocratic culture, which in turn was changing the culture of the region in general. Now, the other mechanism that was advancing those cultural changes and making a turn towards French cultural hegemony were the tournaments, and we will get to those in a later episode. But keep an eye on all this stuff, because this is what's really driving this cultural change. Now, back to King Malcolm in 1072. In addition to handing over poor little Duncan, it appears the Scottish king also agreed to shut down his courtly halfway house. Because immediately following this agreement, Edgar the Atheling retreated to Flanders. You gotta love Flanders. They always welcome an English outlaw. And with the agreement at Abernathy finalized, the massive English invasion force returned home. And Malcolm had avoided facing outright war with his incredibly violent neighbor. And William, for his part had ensured that he didn't need to be so concerned about his northern border. I mean, now that Malcolm had agreed to be William's man, the Scottish raids on Cumbria would presumably cease. 
which meant that now, at last, William was free to handle one of those loose threads which had been left dangling for far too long. You see, Earl Gospatrick of Northumbria had been instrumental in the Northern Rebellions. He'd also given support to the people who had killed Robert de Comenet. And he was part of the rebellion at York, where a whole bunch of Norman knights had lost their lives. Gospatrick should have been public enemy number one for the Norman court, but he was also related to many of the most powerful dynasties in Britain, including the royal family of Scotland. And that fact, along with his strong position in Bamburgh, had enabled Gospatrick to survive the failure of the Northumbrian Rebellion and actually stay in power. Under William, of course. And William probably didn't like that fact, but he kind of needed him. When the Scots invaded Cumbria earlier, it was Gospatrick who was dispatched to deal with it. And this guy's strong dynastic and political links were probably also being wielded by the Normans to avoid further invasions by the Scots, or at least provide some sort of speed bump to Malcolm, should he come south seeking a crown. But that was before the agreement in Abernathy. That agreement had changed everything. Suddenly, William didn't need Earl Gospatrick. And the rebel Earl saw the way the winds were blowing. Because by the time William got back, Gospatrick was gone. He was on a boat to Flanders. Because of course he was. The time of open English rebellion was coming to a close. Though, Britain was still living through a time of intense social breach. Up was down, down was up, and sideways became the new normal. But in this chaos, a new order was forming. Even if it wasn't obvious for the people living through it. Now, it would be impossible to go through all the cultural changes that were reverberating throughout Europe. And I won't even try. But I think it's important to remember how many of the things that feel set in stone when we look back from our vantage point in the present, like the papacy's influence in medieval politics, crusader culture, the celibacy of the clergy, and the power structure of the English church, were actually radical ideas being pushed by radical figures who were acting on their own agendas and often without too much concern about the long-term ramifications of what they were establishing. And as these powerful players advanced their goals, they also put pieces into play without realizing. Moves were being made that were going to shape the course of history in ways that they couldn't anticipate. And that was a fact that the newly homeless Gospatrick, who was a relative of both the House of Wessex and the House of Dunkeld, could totally attest to. Which brings us back to the last episode, where I accidentally misspoke and said that there was only one English-born Earl in all of England. Because now, at the end of 1072, with Gospatrick gone, William's in-law, Waltheof, was established as the new Earl of Northumbria. And that meant that now there was, indeed, only one English-born Earl in all of England. There. Fixed it. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And you can also join us on Reddit. It's a lovely community. And honestly, it feels like it's one of the only nice areas of social media left on the internet. So go and check it out. And as always, thanks for listening. Hey,